You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. And we are recording this episode on Thursday the 9th of February. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about why Sweden is warning of an increased terror threat. We'll look at a great Swedish word that exemplifies this time of year. And we'll discuss ways to improve your experience of what's left of the winter. We'll listen to an interview with the British ambassador to Sweden. And finally, we will hear from the Migration Minister Maria Malmer Stenergaard on what the future holds for work permit holders in Sweden. I'm Paul O'Mahony and I'm joined today in Stockholm by James Savage and we also have Richard Orange and Emma Lovegreen on the line from Malmö and Simrishamn respectively. How are you all? Good. Good, thank you. Good. And I should mention too that it's Becky's turn to take a break from the podcast, but since she was the one conducting the interview with the migration minister that we're going to listen to later, she is going to drop in to give us a little bit of background on that conversation. Okay, on to news. Earlier in the week, uh, the United States warned that Sweden could face retaliatory attacks by Islamist terrorists after recent Koran burnings. And we heard a similar message from the Swedish security police SEPO a couple of days later. What do we know about these developments, James? So on Monday, the US embassy in Stockholm told US citizens to use caution in public spaces in Sweden, saying there was a risk of terror attacks in re- retaliation for Rasmus Paludan's uh, Koran burning. Then on Wednesday, SEPO, the Swedish security police, said it was seeing an increased number of threats against Sweden in its intelligence flow. And the head of Sweden's psychological defence agency said there was an ongoing extensive disinformation campaign against Sweden, including violent statements mentioning the country as as a legitimate terror target following the protests. It's notable that they haven't yet raised the current terror threat level, mm. however. It remains at three on a five-point scale, but Serpo's security police have said that if current patterns were sustained, it was possible that the threat level would, would be raised. So there is a certain sort of level of heightened awareness around these issues. There is a certainly a, a, an increased risk. In related news on Wednesday, police in Stockholm refused permission for another Quran burning outside the Turkish embassy. And the application was made by an unknown private individual, not known to be Rasmus Paladan in this case. The police said that they couldn't 
guarantee public safety and that the Quran burnings gave rise to threats against Swedish society. And this was a position they'd arrived at after consulting with Serpo. So I think we're seeing here a very different attitude from the police to what we've seen before. And we'll see if this affects the threat level mm. uh, going forward. But they look at this on a case-by-case basis, right? They look at this on a case-by-case basis. But if you look at the uh, rationale for forbidding the Quran burning in this case, there was a very similar kind of planned demonstration. And the police in Stockholm were looking at the, at the sort of the globe, basically at the global situation, at the, at the global threat level. Yeah. And if you if you look at what a lot of lawyers are saying about this, they're saying that the, the Stockholm police are on kind of very shaky ground here in forbidding this, this protest. But clearly, there have been discussions between SEPO and the police in Stockholm, and they've come to this view for now, and we'll see if it holds, if it en- ends up in court or anything like that. Mm. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's turn to the Swedish language now. And I saw a great word that you covered in the Word of the Day series this week, Uxvekuna. Can you tell us, Emma, what this word literally means and what it refers to? So it literally means ox weeks, as you could maybe guess. I didn't actually know about it myself until I read our own Word of the Day series, so I learned something too. But it's uh, it's used to describe this time of the year, basically, that period between early January and Easter when it's mm. dark and it's cold and we don't even have any public holidays to get us through this period of darkness and coldness. But at least today... We get 25 days of annual leave, so we can claim some of those. But uh, back in the day when Swedes were pretty much either rich enough not to work or they worked on a farm, public holidays were one of the few chances for a break. So farmers had to, during this period, kind of work, quote-unquote, like an ox. Plus that they used oxen during this time to plough their fields in preparation for sowing crops in spring and so on. It also used to be used to describe the autumn, where you actually go a longer period without a public holiday. But today it's mainly used for January to March. Okay, thanks for that. I find it strange that you had never heard the word. I've heard it used by Gothenburg people. I have a few Gothenburg people around me on a daily basis. I'm from Skåne, so maybe it just doesn't get that cold and dark down here in southern Sweden. Well, I think that's the thing. It's not just a lack of public holidays, is it? It's the lack of public holidays combined with the terrible weather and that sort of never-ending feeling of greyness and oppression that you get at this time of year, which I suppose is slightly less pronounced. Uh, Thanks for that, corner. James. Very cheery. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think we're going to turn to, to Richard now because I know Richard has some tips for getting us through the Ox Weeks. Yeah, I mean, what Swedes do is drink ginormous amounts of coffee. I mean, it's why the Swedes and the Finns have the highest coffee consumption in the world, I think. is like when it, when mm. it gets really, really dark for a long time, the only way to kind of keep your senses buzzing is to just be on a constant caffeine high so i think that's one of the top tips i mean just drink more coffee Mm, i've I've definitely adopted that one (laughs) fully on board yeah and then another thing uh, the more well-off Swedes I know do is is take advantage of the Sportloof holiday, which is coming up in a week or so, mm-hmm. and piss off to Thailand or Tenerife <laughs> or somewhere like that. Or, or even just like break your kids out of school illegally and just, just go for a, a week in Thailand. Uh, and then, you know, they come back tanned and annoying. And then... Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then... And then also... Um, I mean, the, the municipalities, they, they put lights everywhere to keep everyone 
I don't know, in a sort of sort of hopeless attempt to kind of raise everyone's spirits. So, I mean, with the kids, I quite when, when I've got kids, I quite often go to like there's a skate place that has like bright lights and neon and in the local park, and that tends to sort of lift me out of the gloom a little bit. Mm. And there was an, there was an Aussie guy who start, tried to start a kind of light therapy center down here, but I think that I don't, I'm not sure he managed to do it because he was he missed the sun so much this time of year. <laughs> but the other thing is is just to work. I mean, just give into it and just like just give up on any kind of enjoyment or happiness for a couple of months and just, you know, get get a big chunk of the year's work out of the way so you can take a whole month off in the summer, <laughs> I would say. That, that, I, th I think that's another thing the Swedes do. I mean, they just do it. They just sit there and work. That's why you don't see anyone. The social life goes down to norm almost nothing. I think people just finish all their, you know, do all their major projects. I don't know, but, do, do, but what, do, what do you think? I think, I think people do, actually. I, I think it's real. I think people do work really intensely. For, yeah. a, no, for a few months in Sweden and then hardly work at all, you know, for the entire summer, not just the summer holidays, but the months around it as well. I do find it quite difficult, though. It does. F <laughs> it feels like there's a there's a there's a philosophy in Sweden. It's not just for these three months. It's like we work for almost the entire year. And then in the summer, we have like one, two, three months where we do absolutely nothing. And we we try and squeeze all the enjoyment into that, which feels like if I'm only going to live one quarter of my life and <laughs> gonna I'm gonna have a miserable time for three quarters of my life I don't I don't think that's a very good equation you notice that in the you go you go in the countryside and it's like you know these small towns will have businesses cafes and restaurants and shops that will open for like three months a year it's like yeah closed now you know September now we're closed see you see you again in June it's it's a bit depressing I was expecting this I was expecting this segment to be a bit more uplifting <laughs> no. well, I, well, I, I'm not sure why you were expecting that <laughs> at least you know what to expect I mean in in January and February and March I don't enjoy myself in June July August I do enjoy myself and then I know what to expect can't have spontaneous fun <laughs> the Swede has spoken. <laughs> I mean, what do you think about moose? You know, I think moose is a is a is a way Swedes. You know, they kind of hibernate. Yeah, I mean, definitely, and yeah, yeah I mean, it, it goes into that whole thing of of moose. It's like the Danish hygge, however you pronounce it. Yeah, it's 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 that's what you do at this time of year. You stay at home. You cocoon. And in summer, you do the same thing, but at your summer house. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, any excuse to avoid meeting other people. Mm, it's a country of introverts. <laughs> we'll include links to the articles we're discussing in the show notes. And if you're listening to the podcast through an app, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a review or rate us in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Now it's time for the latest in our series of interviews with ambassadors to Sweden. Earlier this week, I sat down with the British ambassador Judith Goff to talk about everything from news of UK citizens being told to leave Sweden post-Brexit to what makes the relationship between Sweden and Britain so strong. And if you can hear what sounds like a roaring fire in the background of our conversation, then your ears are not deceiving you. And I have to say that you could do worse things during the Ox Weeks than sitting down for a fireside chat. Yet the music. Anyway, let's hear now what the uh, British ambassador had to say. 
My name is Judith Goff. I am His Majesty's Ambassador to Sweden and have been since 2019. My background is career diplomat for the last 20 years, mainly focused on European security uh, in Eastern Europe with a bit of Asia thrown in. My first posting was South Korea. Eurovision fan, outdoor enthusiast, lots of interests and so on and so forth. And how long have you been in Sweden and is the move Eurovision related in any way? Is that why you were posted here? I wish I could say yes to that last question, but um, sadly not, although that was a great attraction. So my family and I drove to Sweden in the summer of 2019 uh, from my last posting in Kiev where I was ambassador. Okay. And what's um, your favourite Swedish Eurovision song ever? Oh, that's really impossible. I, you know, there are so, so many. I really liked last year's, actually. I thought Cornelia Jacobs was robbed to come forth. I thought she had one of the best songs by far, although, of course, I'm not going to diss the Ukrainian or the British entries uh, that came out on top. Very good. And let's talk a little bit about UK citizens in mm. Sweden. How many are there to start with? Difficult to calculate, um, but in 2021, the figures that we had were 32,000 British citizens living in Sweden. Okay, that's quite a lot. And are there any discernible patterns in where they're living and what they're doing, or is it more a case of everywhere and everything? Well, apparently there are twice as many men as there are women, and we know that a lot of Brits come here to work uh, or for work, but an also awful lot of Brits come here for love as well. So that is always an interesting dynamic. Perhaps that's why there's an imbalance um, between the genders. Obviously, a concentration of Brits in Stockholm, uh, places like Gothenburg, but pretty spread throughout the country, uh, as you might expect. Um, we go everywhere. And do you have anything against Swedish women for stealing all your men? Uh, I'm gay, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I know Sweden and the UK enjoy very strong bilateral relations, and we'll get to that in a moment. But one thing I wanted to ask you about first is this issue we've been reporting on recently at The Local, whereby many UK citizens who've lived here for a long time have been ordered to leave Sweden after failing to meet residency or visa requirements post-Brexit with Official European statistics or EU statistics suggesting that Sweden has deported almost as many UK citizens as the rest of the EU member states combined. Have you been in contact with British people in this position and are you talking to the Swedish authorities about it? So, I mean, first of all, I think we need to really understand what those statistics mean. They're not our statistics, um, so I, I would encourage you uh, to talk to the Swedes about this and where those statistics uh, really come from. Uh, they sound high. Our experience is very much that we are contacted every year by large numbers of Brits requiring assistance. Very few of those have actually been around this subject. So we have had very, very little uh, concerns raised with us directly. Obviously, where we have had concerns raised, uh, we try and do what we can to help. I think the key thing is for people to really understand what the requirements are. There's a lot of information out there in English and in Swedish. If you go to Migrachon's, Verket's web pages, yeah. uh, there's a lot of information out there. And we also had a number of information campaigns prior to the deadline which really spelt out what people needed to do. And, you know, one thing we know in Sweden is you do really need to have your paperwork correct, so people need to make sure that their paperwork is in good order. I mean, that's interesting that you haven't come across it that 
often at the embassy. So should anyone facing expulsion from Sweden due to not having their papers in order, should they contact you for help or what sort? What should they do? We provide consular assistance to Brits who uh, need our help. Uh, if people want to contact the embassy, then I'm sure you can look for our contact details on all of our social media channels and on our website. Um, but I think the key thing is when it comes to dealing with issues of these sort is really do look at the information is that, that is there and make sure that you understand what is required because we know in Sweden that it is quite specific often and the paperwork really needs to be in good order. But of course, um, we stand ready to support British nationals who need assistance uh, in Sweden. Great. Okay, let's move on now to bilateral relations, which are famously strong. For example, the UK was arguably Sweden's strongest ally in the EU. The countries voted the same way on most issues. What are the roots of these strong ties and what's the current state of the relationship? Well, I mean, I think one obvious point is geography. We're not that far away from each other. We're separated by a bit of a rough stretch of water. But there is evidence going back over a thousand years that we have been trading uh, between uh, our two respective uh, geographies. So there's that relationship. If you go back to 1654, and why why shouldn't we? Uh, one of my predecessors, the fantastically named Bulstrode Whitlock, who was ambassador under Oliver Cromwell when he was Lord Protector, uh, was sent here uh, to the court of Uppsala and signed a treaty of trade and amity with Sweden back in 1654. Now, this treaty is still extant, but it's very much of its time. And it talked about the UK and Sweden trading with each other. That we still do, and vigorously. It talked about navigation on the high seas, both as seafaring nations, really important. But it also had a fantastic clause in there where we promised that we would love each other. The court language of the time was perhaps a little more enthusiastic than we would use today. But actually, I think that stands the test of time. We are two nations that actually rub along pretty well together. Mm. Uh, we, we are culturally very aligned. We're not entirely identical. Of course we're not. But it is a close, pragmatic relationship, um, and there is a lot that we have in common uh, and continue to enjoy together, uh, not least you know, things like Midsummer Murders. I mean, it always strikes me when you turn the television on Sweden, uh, and there's me desperately wanting to you know, test my Swedish, and I find yeah. that there's quite a British, British TV. And that's great. That's testament to just how closely aligned we are at times. That was the British ambassador Judith Goff. And if you're interested in getting her thoughts on things like Britain's security cooperation with Sweden and what has surprised her since moving here, we'll have an article on the site in the coming days featuring more from the interview. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sweden's Migration Minister Maria Malmer Stenergaard was in Malmö this week to visit the Migration Agency for a meeting about the government's repatriation drive whereby it is encouraging asylum seekers to return to the countries they fled from if it's deemed safe enough to return. This issue was once the preserve of the far-right Sweden Democrats but has become government policy and is enshrined in the TIDA agreement, a document signed in October of last year that codifies the three governmental parties' collaboration with the Sweden Democrats. As we've spoken about many times on this podcast, Sweden's new government has taken a much tougher line on immigration than its predecessors and Becky got a few minutes to sit down with the minister to ask some migration-related questions and even though it's officially Becky's week off from the podcast. We are lucky enough to have her here for a few minutes to give us some background. Thanks for stopping by, Becky. Yeah, thank you. I can't escape the podcast even on my week off. Good, good. That's the way we like it. So before we listen to the interview, can you tell us a little bit about Maria Malmö Stenergaard? Who is she and why did she get the job as Migration Minister? Sure. So she's from the Moderate Party. She's from Kristianstad, or which is spelled Kristianstad in uh, Skåne. She's uh, born in 1981 and lives in Aarhus in Kristianstad uh, municipality. Yeah. She's been the migration spokesperson for the moderates since 2019, first entered parliament in 2014, and is obviously now the migration minister. Prior to that, she was chairman of Socialforsäkringsutskottet, or the Social Security Committee, since 2019, which essentially covers issues related to Sweden's welfare system. So like social security, if you get sick, if you have mm-hmm. a disability, benefits for families like VAB, uh, that kind of stuff. But also the Social Security Committee has responsibilities for migration issues and asylum policy. So she's got a fair bit of experience working with kind of immigration and migration too. Outside of parliament, she's a qualified lawyer and she actually used to work as a kronofogde, which is in simple terms, it's like a lawyer working for kronofogden, the Swedish Mm -hmm. Enforcement Authority. So the crown bailiffs. So they're the kind of people that get in touch with you if if you haven't paid a bill or something. Okay, great. And uh, we're going to listen to the interview in, in a couple of minutes, but there are a couple of things in there where I think it would be helpful for you to jog our memory a bit before we listen. So, for example, you ask her about plans to introduce a salary threshold. What's the story there? Yeah, so those of you who have been listening for a while have probably heard us talking about this, but essentially uh, this is a bill which was passed late last year, originally proposed by the former Social Democrat government, which would allow the government to bring in a minimum salary requirement for work permit applications. So only people who earn over this amount would be able to get a work permit. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that this bill was passed in November, Maria Malmö-Sainagod said that the government would introduce the requirement pretty much as soon as possible, but yep. they still haven't announced when it'll be introduced or how much work permit applicants will have to earn, which is why I asked her about it. Okay, good. Yeah. You also ask her about labour market testing. What's that? This is another method to limit labour migration, which was also originally proposed by the former government. This would basically mean that you'd only be eligible for a work permit if you work in a sector experiencing a shortage. So, for example, Denmark has this. It's referred to as the positive list with a mix of everything from kind of CNC machinists to hospitality workers to nurses. And it's been unclear for a while whether the government will actually go through with this or not, which is essentially why I asked her to clear that up. 
Okay, great. And just a quick note on terminology. You refer at one point to an utredning and a remiss. Can you just explain those Swedish terms? Yeah, so these are obviously Swedish terms. I'll try and put it simply, but if you're interested in how the legislative process works in Sweden in more detail, we've got an explainer up on the site. Basically, an utredning is an inquiry and a remiss is the consultation stage of a law. Essentially, an utredning and a remiss are stages in the legislative process in Sweden which occur before a law is finally put to parliament. So what I'm asking her about in those two questions is whether these two laws, the language test for citizenship and labour market testing, which are both proposed by the former government, are still being worked on or if her government is going to drop the proposals. Okay, great. And just one final thing. Yeah, you ask her to address concerns from EY that a new directive from the government is going to overwhelm the migration agency and lead to increased delays. What's the directive they're referring to? Yeah, so this was a government order to the Migration Agency. I don't think it was technically a directive, but it's, it doesn't make much of a difference. Okay. I'm asking them to crack down on work permit and residence permit abuses, essentially. It was announced in a press conference with Maria Malmstenegård and the Sweden Democrats parliamentary group leader, Henrik Vinge. And they both mentioned kind of people arriving in Sweden on a student permit who then use it to work or for some other reason, as one example mm-hmm. of these abuses. And then EY, which is uh, an accounting firm, you might know them as Ernst & Young, that was their previous name, uh, Among other things, they sought out work permits for companies and they were essentially worried that this could provide a heavier burden on work permit applications, which, as I'm sure you all know, have extremely long waiting times already. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Becky, for filling us in. And let's now listen to your interview with Migration Minister Maria Malmö-Stenegard. And we'll be back after that with analysis from our panellists. Sweden's parliamentary ombudsman recently described the Migration Agency's waiting times for work permits asylum requests and citizenship are unacceptable and some industry organisations like the Swedish games industry are worried that this is deterring highly skilled migrants from Sweden. What is your government going to do to shorten Mm. waiting times? Mm. I and the government are also very worried so that is why we have given an assignment to the the Swedish migration authorities to promote uh, high skilled labour migration. In the shift of January and February, they are going to come up with a plan for a new organization uh, that is going to focus only on high-skilled workforce migration. And hopefully that will, uh, in short, lead to shorter handing times and uh, make it more attractive for for foreigners to come here to work in skilled and highly skilled uh, professions. I am extremely worried that those who would like to go to Sweden, don't do that because there is such an uncertainty and there are so long waiting times. And we cannot afford that uh, in Swedish industries, Swedish companies, because they are so depending on finding the the smartest persons all over the world in order to be able to compete. On that note, um, EY, so they're one of, they used to be called Ernst & Young, one of the biggest work permit handlers, they told us that they were concerned that the new order that your government has given to the Migration Agency to check up on studying work permits could overburden staff and make delays even worse. Um, Have you got any plans to make sure that doesn't happen? I don't agree, because this new organisation with a special department focusing on uh, recruitment of international talents, they will not work uh, with this. It will be another department working with this. Uh, But that is also a different, uh, uh, a very important part of of, uh, the authorities' work because we have been given signals that there has been a lot of fraud regarding students' permits uh, where 
people are supposed to come here to study but actually have other intentions. So in order to uh, have this have a well-functioning migration system, it is also important that we fight this kind of fraud. So I think it is actually linked uh, in order to make Sweden attractive and have a well-functioning asylum system or uh, and uh, migration system. And those two departments, they're going to be completely separate. So the workload for one department won't affect waiting times for work permits. No, we will not allow that to happen because it is a priority for this government to, to cut the uh, uh, handling times. When are you planning on announcing the new payment threshold for work permits? And um, can you promise it won't apply retroactively to people that have already applied but haven't yet had a response? We are right now working on the final uh, legislation and I cannot give you an exact date, uh, but we are uh, really working this through thoroughly in order to, to have a well-functioning system. and. Uh, we will also give organizations uh, and other authorities a possibility to have their say before it, it goes into legislation. Yeah. And will it, do you know if it will apply retroactively? So if people who have applied for a work permit but it hasn't been approved yet, if they will then have to supplement their application with the new... Well, I'm quite sure that the, uh, the law that was adopted at the end of November stated quite clearly that the, if you had already applied... The, it would be the, the old prerequisites, but uh, let me get back to you on that. Okay. I know the last law that was changed, that replied retroactively. Um, the last work, I think it was in June or July last year, that ended up applying. So the new rules from that date meant that if you had a work permit that was waiting, you had to then supplement with, I think it was like a wetting signature on your contract. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think that's a different thing. So okay. when it comes to, to the... but but but. When it comes to prolongation, that is another thing. But if you have already applied and are waiting for a decision, then I think the old rules will, will apply. But let me check okay. it yeah. and get back to you. Another question on work permits. Um, some people who are waiting for work permit renewals, they aren't able to leave the country while their applications are processing, which means that they can be stuck in Sweden for months or even years in some cases, you know, missing weddings, missing funerals. Yeah, yeah. Um, other countries <laughs> offer exit visas to allow mm. people to travel. Mm. Is that something that you're considering? You're going to consider doing in Sweden as well? Yes, I will consider it. I'm well aware of these problems. And also uh, persons who would like to go to, to uh, seminars and so uh, abroad uh, mm. are refused to do so. So that is a, truly a problem. And of course, this is linked to the very long waiting times. So if we cut the waiting times for prolongation, then uh, it w won't be such a big problem. But um, um, I think there will still need to be some changes done. And I will look into that. Yeah. Now on to a question on um, post-Brexit residence status. So recent Eurostat statistics said that Sweden's ordered more Brits to leave than any other EU country since Brexit. How can you explain that? Is that something that you can explain? <laughs> This is actually complete news to me, so I cannot okay. at this moment explain it, but I promise I will look into it and get back to you. Yeah, mm. there was another, I think it was on SR, a mm -hmm. woman called Kathleen Poole, who um, is bedbound. Uh, she has Alzheimer's, British woman. Um, she was recently ordered to leave after 18 years living in Sweden, mm -hmm. um, as she no longer has the right to stay here. Her family all lives in Sweden as well. I was wondering if what, what that says to you about the system. Do you think that's a sign that the system is working, or could there be something there that needs to be looked into? Yeah, I think it's, it's it, well, it's always the same that you have an individual assessment made yeah. by the authorities and that is completely an independent uh, decision by the authorities and I cannot 
say anything about the specific case that would be against the law yeah. if I did that. Some of our readers have said they feel a bit less welcome in Sweden since uh, your government came to power, especially regarding plans to tighten up citizenship and permanent residency applications. Mm. What's your response to that? Uh, when it comes to, for instance, uh, researchers uh, and, and uh, students, uh, we say that in the TIDO agreement that we will look into the rules regarding permanent residency uh, because I know it has been uh, some uh, quite uh, big changes for these groups. But I really want to send a, a clear signal that if you want to come to Sweden in order to but, uh, to contribute and uh, learn Swedish and, and pay taxes and work, then you're more than welcome. And uh, I'm actually uh, convinced that the changes that we will make will give us a more, more fair system uh, that also creates uh, a better legitimacy for the migration system. On that note, are you planning on introducing labour market testing? I know there was an utredning from the last government, but nothing has happened about that. No, we have no plans to do that. Okay. The last government also made a proposal for language tests for citizenship, but um, that hasn't really moved past... Like, it, had, it got to the remiss stage, but it was never put to a parliamentary vote. I was wondering what the status of that proposal is, um, if it's been cancelled or if your government's planning on resubmitting it in a different form. Oh, we are going to work uh, work on it uh, in order to to have uh, uh, language tests for citizenship. So so we we will. But I, exactly how we will use the old uh, inquiry, I'm not. How are you planning on tightening up citizenship? Otherwise, well, we would like uh, in general to have a longer time for qualifying. So from five years to eight years. And then uh, you also are supposed to have uh, bigger knowledge about the Swedish society and also, of course, language tests. So in Sweden, we have really been quite different compared to many other comparable countries. And it has been quite easy to gain a citizenship here. And we would like to change that. Is that the same for permanent residencies as well with the language tests? And the, it's going to be like language tests and culture tests for them as well. When it comes to asylum-related residence, uh, permits, then there will not be any uh, permanent permits. And when it comes to the others, yes, we have a plan for uh, for language qualifications. That was Sweden's Migration Minister Maria Malmö-Stenegard in conversation with Becky. James, was there anything that stood out for you when listening to the interview? Yeah, I think... Certainly, what you got from this was that, that she understood a lot of the issues facing high-skilled work permit applicants. She clearly differentiated between asylum seekers and work permit holders in a way that hasn't always mm. been crystal clear in the way the government has spoken about uh, about these issues. Certainly, you know, when it comes to things like permanent residency, they've just talked about permanent residency as an issue on its own and not distinguished between permanent residency for asylum seekers and permanent residency for people, for instance, on work permits. And in this interview, she, she made clear that people on work permits at the institution of, of, of permanent residency would be maintained. She has clarified that before, but it was it was good to hear it here as well. Yeah, um, and she sort of acknowledged that there was a communication problem there that, you know, they had failed to communicate it in the early weeks after the new government was formed. Exactly, exactly. I mean, clearly, you know, what, what what's very clear is that, you know, this government is very much focused on asylum migration and perhaps to an extent on clamping down on certain kinds of low-skilled labour migration, but they've some sometimes forgotten the importance of labour migration, which I think, you know, when you when you hear her speak here, she does acknowledge that high-skilled labour migration is important to Sweden and that 
they have to up their game when mm. handling high-skilled labour migrants. Um, she acknowledged the issue around waiting times. It was positive that she was looking at things like exit visas, which we'll get back to in a second. Mm. And I think it was interesting that she was talking about this separate stream for handling high-skilled work permit applications that yeah. will be dealt with by a different departments at, mm. at, at migration at, at, at the migration agency. Although she didn't clearly, give a time frame on that, though, did she? She didn't give a time frame on that. Very vague so far, but you know. It's clear that the will is there up to a point. The question is whether the will is going to be sustained when put up against all the other priorities that the government has on migration and the other pressures on on the migration agency. I also kind of wonder a little bit if they might be overestimating how reassured work permit holders will be by what she's saying about how, oh, it's not you, it's just um, it's asylum seekers. The impression that I get from a lot of our readers is, for one thing, that there is kind of a sense of solidarity among mm. immigrants as a whole. Yeah. And also that there's a concern that, well, OK, you're coming from there for them now, but you're going to come for us next. And also that there are some of the new laws that they want to introduce that will affect work permit holders, like the salary threshold at 33,000 kroner is quite high. So that will keep out a lot of highly skilled workers if that happens. I know that they want to introduce some exceptions, but it's not really clear yet what they're going to be. Well, you're right that there is, you know, many people feel a general sense of solidarity, but, you know, many work permit holders feel a general sense of solidarity with asylum seekers, quite understandably and rightly. They are different issues. And in, in a practical sense, it is important for work permit holders that the government treats them as separate issues because ultimately we know that the government is going to clamp down on asylum. If they don't separate the issues, then it's a very, very bad show for work permit holders or prospective work permit holders. So, you know, in practical terms, it is, it is going to be important that, that the government sees the importance of work permit holders, that it's feeling the pressure from business lobbying organisations um, to make life easier for work permit holders. And this government, you know, the moderate party, um, certainly, but even the other parties in the in the governing coalition do listen to big, to business, and they are amenable to that kind of argumentation. The question is whether they can actually make the bureaucracy work around it. And this was definitely the clearest they've been yet on kind of making that distinction. Yeah, yeah. Emma, were you surprised that Maria Malmes Stenegard wasn't aware that Sweden had ordered more UK citizens to leave than any other EU country? It falls pretty much exactly under her remit, doesn't it? Even mm. if she wasn't migration minister at the time of Brexit. But, I mean, it's not like the risk of this happening never came up. Like I went back this week to look at the bill that the then centre-left government had put forward that, um, mm. that created the post-Brexit residence status for Brits. And just to recap, when a new bill is being prepared in Sweden, you get relevant authorities and organisations who are invited to comment on it. But even if you're not invited, you can still submit your comments. And the Facebook group Brits in Sweden, they did. And I remember at the time, I was actually pleasantly surprised by how much of the government's final document that actually brought up and responded to their criticism. Mm. Although they pretty much dismissed all of it and were like, nah, it'll be fine. And Brits in Sweden, I know that they warned that some of the intricacies of Swedish migration law and the way that they had chosen to go about making people apply for residence status, that they, it could lead to like a significant number of Brits failing to meet the requirements. And if you look back at that document, it's actually stunning 
how much of what they predicted is exactly what's happening. Interesting. Exactly. And get this. So Malmö Stenegård was the chair of Parliament's Social Insurance Committee at the time, which is mm-hmm. the committee that processed the bill and recommended to Parliament that they approve it. So she would surely have been aware of everything that was said at the time. And it's not on the recording, but she even told Becky that the committee had been working hard to protect the rights of Brits. So for her to say that it's news to her, and honestly for a migration minister in general to say that deportation figures are news to them, yeah, that's, that's a bit surprising. I might also add that like, we've been trying to get to the bottom of these stats and yeah. they're supposed to be stats that Sweden provided to Eurostat. But we keep being kind of pushed from the border police to the migration agency and back again, and nobody seems to really want to talk about it. And like yeah. this, this part of me that can't quite shake the thought that, like, what if there's just something wrong with these stats? And yeah. yes. I, I, I promise I don't mean that in a sort of, we have more cases because we have better data kind of way, but... We know that Sweden isn't exactly the only country in Europe that has weirdly strict migration laws. So it's bizarre that it would be responsible for half of the post-Brexit deportations. The post-Brexit deportation stats, they also include Brits that are stopped on the border, for example, and Brits who have moved here recently. So it's not just necessarily Brits who lived in Sweden at the time of Brexit. No. But also, at the same time, we, we do know that Sweden's choice to use the system that made Brits actively apply for residence status rather than giving it to them automatically, as a lot of other countries did, that increased the risk of deportations. And we also know that many of those applications were rejected because we have our own stats from the Migration Agency on that. Yeah, but what we don't, and what we don't know from that, from those stats though, is how many of those who were rejected on the first application were, were then later able to supplement their application and be yeah, accepted. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or, or maybe they qualified for something like citizenship instead and could stay because of that. Yeah, but we do know that we have seen concrete examples of British people who lived in Sweden before Brexit being issued with deportation orders. And, um, you know, most recently, a Swedish radio found a, a woman who was suffering from dementia um, who'd lived here for 18 years and was facing a deportation order. And I know that Becky has another article coming up about another British person who um, has lived here for a long time who has also faced a de- deportation order. Now, um, you know, there is particular circumstances in each case, but we do know that this is actually happening. The question is, is it happening to the extent that these figures make it appear it's happening or is it, is it a smaller order? Well, at least now the migration minister is aware of it and she has promised that, that she's going to look into it. Okay, good. Yes, we watch that space and see what she gets back to us with. Richard, what do you make of the fact that she acknowledged that a lot of work permit holders are effectively trapped in Sweden and that she was open to the idea of introducing an exit visa? I mean, it's it's very, very good news. And the sooner the better, because it's, it's it's a horrific situation that, you know, thousands and thousands of people are in where, where they can't go back home for weddings, they can't go back home for dying relatives, they can't go back home for any personal reason whatsoever, and they feel absolutely trapped in Sweden. So it, it would be great, and the, so, the sooner the better. I mean, th- things move slowly in Sweden, so it, it could be years. I mean, the migration agency already issues what it calls a D visa for business trips. So 
what what I think is frustrating for some of the people working in Sweden is that they're allowed to, to leave the country and maybe visit India or, or wherever for a business trip, but not yeah. to see a relative. And and that they put out a petition last year sort of asking for that possibility to be extended for personal trips. And the migration agency said they're not able to do that just by the way the legislation is um, drawn up. So it is a matter for politicians. So if she can rush through a bill that would allow an exit visa for personal reasons, I mean, that would that would completely change the experience of, of lots of foreigners working in Sweden. Because in, in a way, the, the delay, that, that's the main reason that the delays are a problem, because they're still allowed to continue working while their yeah. application is processed, but they're just trapped in the country. And uh, Germany and Denmark already have this possibility. So if you're working in Denmark, you can already leave to go to a wedding or mm, for, mm. if you have a good reason for it while your application is being processed and the same with Germany. So I don't know why Sweden should be different. No, exactly. And I guess Sweden doesn't want to lose these high-skilled workers to countries like uh, Germany and Denmark. No, exactly. And, you know, that's certainly what you can hear in, in uh, Mama Stinegaard's responses here, that, that she's really clear that we need this talent in Sweden. <laughs> so, yeah, they have to, they have to act. And that brings us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Our panellists this week were Richard Orange, Emma Lovegreen and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony. And until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.